The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome to Overland Park Community Church. I didn't think we were ever going to get this uh, service started. It feels like we're an hour behind, right? It's like, man, like, it's just counting down like three minutes. It's, like, it's never going to start. Um, so anyway, it's good to be with you. It's good to be uh, uh, back in First uh, John and talking about a loving life. I hope you have enjoyed the series as we've done this study um, in this um, epistle that was written to the church by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' uh, best friends. And I, uh, man, I, I, uh, I was thinking about the message today. It just, it, it seems so much like what I've already talked about. And, uh, and, and I was looking over it and like, Man, this is what it is, Lord. I see what you're, you're saying here. And as I, I was a little frustrated and I, I, I kept feeling like, man, like, I even went back after I titled the sermon, after I wrote it, I looked back on one of the titles of the, like the second sermon was certainty. And this one was certainty. So I had to change it to certainty 2.0. <laughs> and I, I just felt like, man, like, like this, this feels like the same thing. And the Lord said to me, it is the same thing. It is the gospel. And like, we need to get the gospel. And the Lord was really like just, and I was able like to even this morning as the Lord was working me through some stuff about it, is he, I was able to celebrate that in it. Like, I know the gospel, man. And, and, and that's an exciting thing. I, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said that nothing is, is certain in life but death and taxes. Like, but John is saying, no, there's some other stuff that's certain. There's some certain stuff when it comes um, to the gospel. Believers have certainty. And, and, and so when, he, when, he, when he's writing this letter, he, he wants us to know so much, he uses the word um, know 39 times. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot until you say, well, there's only five chapters. In the Bible, it's only like four pages. And 39 times he uses the word no. And in this last chapter, in chapter five, he uses the word eight times. And so like, he wants us to know. And so it's very, very important to him for us to be reinforced as believers who are following Jesus to know some things for certain. And so to love life, we must build our lives on divine certainties that are found nowhere else but Jesus. It's like when we look at the word and we look at what John is teaching us, there are certainties here that are not religious things. Like there's certainties. There's like, man, one of the things that's missing in the world right now is certainty. That's why you watch the news and you're scratching your head and you're like, what is going on? A lot of uncertainty, a lot of chaos, a lot of crazy stuff, like people doing things that are just absolutely absurd. It's because there's no certainty, no center in their lives. And so John gives us some certainties here as he closes out um, his letter to the church and, and, and they're things that we can confidently build on as believers in Christ. Now, it's important for us to understand um, that this letter is written to people who are believers in Jesus. And he's trying to correct some of the things that were trying to creep into the church that were, it, it was error that was being taught. There was stuff that was being taught inside the church. And John says, no, no, this is wrong. 
Like this is not right for this to be being taught in the church. And if people are trying to teach this, they need to be moved out. And you need to understand that it is not right what they're trying to teach. And here we are 2,000 years later. And I would say, I would repeat with certainty what John is saying. There are a lot of churches that are teaching things that they should not be teaching. And so how do we know? Well, John says, look, there are certainties here. There are certainties that we can have, we can rest assured on. We can build our lives on the foundation so that we are sure that we are not stepping into error and building our life and our experience on things that are not certain about God. And so the first thing that John does is he says that he is, John is certain that Jesus is God. Now, you say, well, yeah. Well, I don't know, man. We need to get this because somehow as I interact with people, there is a lot of confusion about Jesus because he is referred to as the son of God. And so we look at him as, well, he's the son of God. He's a, he's a good, no, Jesus is God. He is um, the second person of the Trinity. So God reveals himself into scripture in three distinct personalities, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when we say Jesus, we are saying God of everything. Like, and so we, but, but, but here we are in this, this tolerant society and, 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 and we're saying, well, you know, well, we got to look at this group believes that Jesus was a good dude. And I'm not saying we go be rude to that group, but what we have to understand is that from a biblical perspective, Jesus being a good dude does not get it done. Like Jesus is God. Is there another God? No, if there's another God, then Jesus is not God. There can only be one God. So wait a minute, there can be lots of gods. No, there can't. Like, today, the Chiefs are going to play the Cowboys, and there's only going to be one winner. There's not going to be two. And when it comes to God, there's only one God. Now, you can worship other gods, and there can be a God of an individual's life, but he's either true or false because there can only be one true God. If there's more than one true God, then what is that? There's no, there's no omnipotent um, omnipotence, or, or, or there's no uh, supreme knowledge, there's no supreme power. If there's multiple gods. There is one God and Jesus, John is certain that Jesus is that God. Look at what he says. Again, this, again, we, we, we could say the, we could say the apostle John wrote this and that's good. That, that carries some authority, but I think it helps us to say it this way from a, from an, an apologetic standpoint and understanding, making a case for Jesus being God. John, Jesus's best friend said it this way, like a guy who knew Jesus. So he's giving us a historical perspective about Jesus, like firsthand experience. This is how we know who George Washington is. Someone gave us a firsthand account of who he was and what he did. And we're fascinated by the story. John is giving us a firsthand account of who Jesus was and what he did. And what does he say? This is the one that came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. 
which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And so John is, first of all, he's saying, listen, Jesus is God. So we say, well, he says he's the son of God. Listen, in ancient um, uh, biblical times, when the Hebrews would write this way, the Jews would write this way, to be the son was to be equal with the father. It was the same thing. And that's why, that's why they said Jesus was blaspheming because he's, he's, he made himself out to be equal with God by referring to himself as the son of God. They're saying, you're making yourself out to be equal with God, and that's blasphemy, and, and the religious leaders couldn't handle it. They didn't recognize him for who he was, and so they played a role in seeing that he was um, uh, crucified on the cross, and they rejected him, which was prophesied in the Old Testament that they would do that very thing. No one killed Jesus, okay? Like, no one killed Jesus. Jesus came as God in the flesh to die for your sins. Now, there were people who played a role in rejecting who he was, and he had to be crucified on the cross, but it wasn't like he couldn't stop that from happening. He willingly did it in order to atone for the sins of the people. As I shared with you last week, this important theological word, propitiation. He propitiated our sins. God the Father propitiated his, our sins onto God the Son so that we could go free from the bondage of our sin and stand before God like unashamed. What a wonderful thing to sing today. Like I, like he will knock down any wall to come after me. I was just like, I was just sitting there thinking of all the walls that got knocked down in, in God's pursuit of me. What a wonderful thing to celebrate and sing from the depths of my heart. I am unashamed before the God of the universe because Jesus is God and I have recognized that and I have accepted him as my savior and he has justified me and accepted and taken on my sin and removed it so that I stand with no guilt before the God of the universe. Come on, man, we go home right there. That's enough to encourage us all next week right there is that we, we are free from our sin, not because of anything we do, but simply accepting the gift of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and he sets us free. And so John, what he does here is he presents three infallible witnesses to prove that Jesus is God. And this is why we need in a court of law to convict somebody, we want witnesses. We want a witness. Can I get a witness to testify that this person did X, Y, Z? And when we have that, then we can prosecute somebody. And so John is one of the witnesses that's writing about Jesus and who he is and his identity. But he says, God's witness is greater than man's. And God has given us three witnesses. And the first witness is the water of the word. And so what, it was, what, it, what is meant there? Well, when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened up. The spirit of God descended down upon him, which John the Baptist recognized because he was told by God that the one in whom is going to be the Messiah that sets the uh, world free from their sin, you will recognize him by my spirit descending upon him. And so the spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism by John as a dove, a descended upon him and the heavens opened up and many people heard a voice that said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. The word of God spoke. A lot of people said, what was that, some thunder? <laughs> but some people knew. John 
obviously knew because he, he writes about it. Like we heard that, he says. I'm reminded of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration. A supernatural event takes place. Elijah and Moses are there with Jesus. They're interacting. Peter's mind is blown and he's like, should we set up three tabernacles? And what does the voice say from heaven as it opens up? This is my son, the word coming to the planet. Jesus is described as the logos, the word become flesh. When the woman at the well was sitting with Jesus and she said to him, as he comes and he talks to her and, and, and Jewish men were not to talk to Samaritan women, it was not right. They looked at each other with a prejudice. They were racist. They hated each other. Yeah, the half-breed Jews is what they referred to as the Samaritans. And so this Samaritan woman comes at the middle of the day to avoid all of the scorn that she would face by other people. Jesus shows up with a divine appointment at the well and he asks her for a drink. And she says, what are you asking me a drink for? You Jews have nothing to do with us. And to make a long story short, if you wanna study it, in John chapter four, Jesus said, woman, if you knew the water that I had to give you, you would drink from it and you would never thirst. And she gets into a religious debate with Jesus. She begins to talk to him about the things that are going on and, and uh, around uh, her community and her confusion. And as he's talking to her, um, he says more about this living water that will spring up from within her. And she says, sir, give me a drink of that water because I'm thirsty. And what does Jesus do? He gives her the word. He says, she says, I know the Messiah. When he comes, he will he will explain all things and he, Jesus looks at her and says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the savior of the world. And so it is the word. Now, what do we learn about the word in Ephesians chapter five, verse 26? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Why do you need to be in the word? to cleanse yourself and to wash you by the water of the word. It is an infallible proof of God of who he is and who he said he was. He's proving that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh through the power of the washing of the word. What is the word? It is alive and active, Hebrews tells us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to uh, separate the physical from the spiritual. And as we sit in the word and abide with Jesus, man, he washes over us. I love the word. Like, I love the word. Just give me the word, man, and I can make it through anything. And a person who knows Christ and understands who he is loves the word. When's the last time you were in the word and just said, man, I love what I'm getting here. I'm just consuming it. Like, we love food. Like, I love food too, don't you? I love sweet stuff. I love meaty stuff. I just love food. And sometimes I just want to eat and eat and eat. Sometimes by the looks of some of you, you just want to eat and eat and eat. <laughs> but the word, man, I want to eat the word. <laughs> and I, I can go through things. I can get so stinking discouraged. I can feel like giving up and throwing in the towel. I can feel like a hill, like I blew it with someone. I can feel anxious over something that I'm facing a situation. 
I can feel worried about someone that I love. I can feel concerned about a soul that, that I think is walking down a road that means harm for them. And I can get in the word, man, and all of a sudden, I just start feeling better. Why? Because it is, it is living. It is the word. And the water of the word is an infallible proof that Jesus is God. So like, don't get into this, like, why do you think it is so difficult to read the word? Why do you think it is so difficult to take time to sit with the Lord in the word? Because it will change your life by washing over your life and, and showing you how to live and love life. We get so involved in so many other things and we think it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, the word is so important to our faith. And so we look at it and we see that it is a testimony of God. But not only does the word testify, but the blood of Christ testifies. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from our sin. Today we will celebrate the, the sacrificial blood of Christ that was spilt on the cross of Calvary through communion and observing by drinking this juice in which Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and it is the blood, it is the blood, it is the blood that cleanses us from sin. And so when Jesus was crucified on the cross of Calvary, this like Roman centurion is there and he's responsible for carrying out the execution. And so they normally would go through this process called crucifracture where they would break the victim's knees to ensure that he couldn't breathe anymore and they would, they would go ahead and die. But there was a storm coming in, man, and, and things were getting out of control and, and people were getting weirded out because, man, there was, a, there was something going on. All of a sudden, it starts to get dark and Jesus looks up into heaven and he um, uh, says the last thing from the, that he said, prays from the cross to Telestai, it is finished, and he gives up the spirit. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. And man, everything gets dark and there's an earthquake that kind of rumbles. It's in all the gospels. But lest you need something more than the gospels, then check out the Jewish historian Josephus and he will tell you about it. Extra biblical evidence will tell us that these things transpired. There was an earthquake. It was so violent, it rocked the Jewish temple. The veil of the temple was rent in two. It was torn in two. We're not talking about a veil like a woman would wear over her face. We're talking about a very thick curtain that protected the most holy place from the holy place so that nobody got behind where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was the indicative of God's presence on the planet. That earthquake, that thing, man, was ripped in two. It was torn in two. And what was God was saying through the blood of Christ being shed on the cross is that now I am approachable by all men. Through what? The blood of Christ. The Roman centurion is watching all of these things happen as he stands at the feet of the cross. He is overwhelmed just like everybody else. He is not a believer. He is a Roman carrying out his duty as, a, uh, as the executioner that has been charged by the state of Rome to carry this thing out. And so as they break the knees of the thief on the right, and they break the knees on the thief on the left, they look at Jesus, they can tell he's dead, but they want to make sure, so he gives the nod to thrust the spear into the side of Jesus. He thrusts the spear, and the blood and the water flows, and the Roman centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. Like he's recorded as saying that because he watched the blood of this man spill and he watched the, the miraculous supernatural events in nature happening and he knew 
that something was going on and that it was supernatural and God was behind what was happening. And so the water of the word is an infallible witness to prove that Jesus is God, the blood of Christ and then the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth descended on him at, at, at his baptism. And the beautiful thing is if you read John chapter 16, John chapter 17, John chapter 18, you will learn that the spirit of truth will descend upon a man or a woman, a boy or a girl when he is born again by the blood of Christ when he receives the testimony of the word, he admits with his mouth and he confesses and believes in his heart, then the spirit of God will descend upon him and indwell him. No longer does God live in the ark. He lives in the ark of humanity of all those whose sins are covered by the blood. That's what I'm talking about, man. Like, this is it. Like, all of life, we look around us of all that is going on. And we're so distracted by the things that are the truth. And the truth is that Jesus is God. This is the first certainty and it is foundational to everything else that John wants us to know. He's like, man, church, you gotta get this. You gotta get it. Jesus is God. Here's the second certainty. John is certain that believers have eternal life. Look at verses 11 and 13. This is the testimony God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life, man. How are you gonna love life? Get some eternal life. You get some eternal life and you're gonna start loving life. It is not something we earn. It is the gift of God, is the gift of Jesus, and we have life now. Like, I am living, man. Like, I am, I never felt more alive than I do right now in this moment, and I feel like my life is complete, and all I do is I feel like God just continues to increase the joy and the fruit that he wants to bear in my life, and it has nothing to do with how I perform in this world or what I'm able to accomplish. It has everything to do with my recognition of the deity of Jesus and worshiping him. And I just walk with him and, and, and I'm just living my life with him and he is just doing what he wants to do. And I, I, I find complete satisfaction and joy in that because I have eternal life. Eternal life is not something that we get later. Like eternal life is something that happens right now. Boom! When I get eternal life, I keep eternal life. It doesn't go away. I live forever and ever and ever and ever. My soul is restored. It is redeemed. It is fixed. It is going from the mode of of being a broken soul to a repaired soul, a a redeemed soul, a covered soul. The blood of Christ has made me whole. And so now I have eternal life. What did he say to the woman that was sitting at the well? If you had the water that I would give to you and you drank of it, you would never thirst of it, but we would become a well, a spring of life springing up from within you. Like what? What I'm doing right now, I hope you can get this, is like I'm not, like I'm just letting what's in me out. I didn't go to school to learn how to do this. I sat with the Lord and the more the eternal life got in me, the more it wanted to find its way out. And so for all of my adult life, I've been trying to teach people like this is the most important thing. Everything else is just a side issue and let the word of God get in you and do its thing and you can begin to live life now. The Lord wants his children to know they belong to him. When Sir James Simpson, um, the discoverer of chloroform, 
was on his deathbed, a friend asked him, sir, what are your speculations? And he said, speculations. I have no speculations for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed until that day. It's an old hymn we sing. And he's saying, look, there are no speculations. I'm about to meet Jesus. And that's the kind of certainty that God wants his children to have because when we have that kind of certainty and we can face death with that kind of certainty, it has no hold upon us. And as we look forward to all that God has for us and we can face death with that kind of enthusiasm, then imagine how we can live life. We can love it. Like one of the ways that you know whether or not you're abiding in Christ is can you look forward to death? I have no fear of death, like no fear whatsoever, because I know for me to die is to be with Christ, for me to live is gain, for me to die is gain. It makes no difference. Why? Because I have eternal life. It's already in me. It's just going to be in an unperfected state. John is certain that believers have eternal life, and so am I and I hope you are as well. John is also certain that God answers prayer. I mean, like he just keeps writing this stuff and I just keep reading it and it just keeps getting better and better. Like Jesus is God. John is certain that we have eternal life. And not only do we have eternal life right now, that God answers prayer. Look at what he says in verses 14 through 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask what? Anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. John is certain that that God answers our prayers. He said, well, I pray all the time and I don't think that God answers my prayers. Well, let me give you some conditions that I've already taught you. One of them came out of 1 John 3, verse 21. To have your prayers answered, we must have a heart that does not condemn us. And how do we have a heart that does not condemn us? We walk in the word and let it wash over us. Remember who he talked about in John chapter three, verses 21 through 22? He says, brothers, if our hearts condemn us, like it's gonna happen, your heart is gonna condemn you and that's why you gotta sit in the word with the Lord because the word is gonna be the truth that you need to wash over you to keep your heart of flesh from condemning you so that you can live the life of eternity that God has put in you. And as you live that out, you are able to pray without having condemnation in your life. And we must pray in God's will. This is very, very important. God will meet our needs, not our greeds. And one of the reasons we don't have our prayers answered is because we're just praying greedy prayers. George Mueller was a famous um, guy who lived a long time ago. He built an orphanage, and he never asked anybody for any money. He just took these orphans in, and all he would do was ask the Lord to provide. And he wrote this quote. I think it's, it's fascinating. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying a hold of God's willingness. Like, we're not trying to get God to change his mind about something. We're trying to lay hold of what God is already willing to do. And that's why we pray. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet and you pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, I wanna be like you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, I wanna see what happens on earth. I I want what you want here on the planet. Give me this day my daily bread. God, if you want me to do what you've asked me to do, then I need you to give me this in order to do that. That's praying in the will of God. 
Some of you don't even know what God is asking you to do, so you can't get your prayers answered because you're not spending any time sitting with the Lord, asking him what he wants you to do with your life, that you know what to ask, what you need in order to get done what he wants you to do. Some people think that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to go to church on Sunday. That means that you, when you do that, that's celebration that you are a follower of Jesus. Then we come together and we sing our praise and we gather and we are encouraged through the foolishness of preaching, which is what I'm doing right now and it's been going on for 2,000 years. And it is so that you could come together as the body of Christ and fellowship with one another, be encouraged from what? The washing of the word. And someone comes alongside of you and tells you the importance of the word in your life and that you need to be sitting with the Lord, abiding with Christ, talking to him, praying and letting God do his work in you. And as he does his work in you, he begins to show you what he wants to do with you in your life. One of the things you ought to do on a daily basis is sit down with the word and say, God, show me what you want me to take away from the word today. Speak to me about me. Don't speak to me about my kids. Don't speak to me about my husband and how he needs to change things. Don't speak to me about my wife. Don't speak to me about my job and my boss and how he needs to be corrected. Show me, Lord, what you want to say to me. Wash over me with the word. And then when you hear what he wants us to do by laying it on the truth of scripture, not the feeling of man, not the cultural adaptations, not what everybody in the culture says. We have evolved. I have evolved from nothing but the word. And what I mean by that is like, we're constantly like, man, there's this this spiritual battle that is going on within the church. And it is a battle over the word to try to get the word to alter and change to what it means for today's culture. It means the same thing for today's culture as it did in Jesus's culture. And as soon as we shift it and change it in any aspect, we have altered the very certainty that John is trying to nail home in our lives. And so John is certain that God answers our prayer. And when we are walking with him, the Lord commands us to pray for provision. And I'm certain that when we're walking with him, he answers. I've seen that happen too many times. Like I just, like, when you walk with the Lord, he will answer your prayers. And again, it's a prayer of need, not a prayer of greed. And then the next certainty that John is certain about is that Christians do not practice sin. We've seen this one time again before, but he, he shows it us again before he closes this letter to the church. And he says in verse 16, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those who sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so here's what John is saying by way of review. A believer may sin, but he or she does not practice sin. What does that mean? Well, it means that, that like a believer, they blow it, they're convicted over their sin and they repent and they, they, they try to let the word do its work and they grow past that sin. They go through the process of spiritual growth and sanctification. And so um, 
But there is, there is this idea of a practice of sin, which means that I'm just in a lifestyle. I'm okay with that lifestyle. I practice that lifestyle, and it doesn't really matter because I'm covered by the blood. That is the practice of sin. That is no conviction over the sin that you have in your life. And so that is the practice of sin. Nobody is perfect. There is none righteous, no, not one. John chapter 1, verse 8 said, if we say that we are without sin, we make God out to be a liar. And so now John is saying, though, if we practice sin, there's something wrong as well. So there is the committing of a sin, and then there is the practice of a sinful lifestyle. And so John is certain that people who are born of Christ and covered by the blood, having their prayers answered, receiving eternal life, they do not enter into the practice of sin. So what is he talking about, this sin of death? Like is there's a sin that you commit unto death, and there's a, a, a sin that you may commit that doesn't lead to death. And he says, pray for the person. Um, uh, he says, I'm not saying pray for the person who commits that sin that leads to death. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, he's not talking about the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus as Christ. There is no forgiveness for the unpardonable sin. So when the spirit of God begins to move in your life and the truth of God is proclaimed and you feel God's calling you into the kingdom and and, and you feel a wooing of the Holy Spirit and, and even as today, Like right now, if you do not know Jesus, the word of God has been proclaimed supernaturally under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The word has been proclaimed. The gospel has been proclaimed. If a person rejects that, it is an unpardonable sin. Now, that can't be what John is talking about because John is writing to the church, and the church already believes, and they have accepted Jesus. And so what is he talking about? He's talking about that God will discipline us. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us that when we, um, are, as, a, as a father ch- chastises his children, so God will chastise us. And so when we get out of uh, the will of God and out of the fellowship and out of what God wants us to do and his desire for our lives, and we start kind of moving our own way, then we can expect a divine spanking. I've had them before. Like, they're no fun. But I like to respond to them. And the more that I respond to them, the less of them I get. Like, I'm a child of the Lord, and so sometimes he spanks me. And I'm okay with that because <laughs> I know y'all don't believe this, but sometimes I deserve to be spanked. Like, just, I do, okay? <laughs> Who said amen? I'm gonna... <laughs> so, and so sometimes that happens. And so I appreciate when the Lord convicts me because I, I want him, like, I, he's, my, he's my father, man. Um, and... And so that's just kind of the thing that works. And and what he's saying here is that sometimes the people will get so caught up in sin that their sin may lead them into the point of physical death. Remember the guy in 1 Corinthians, he says, give that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved. Remember he talks about sometimes we make it through with just the wood, hay, and stubble's all burned up, but we just barely make it through. I'm reminded of Ananias and Sapphira. Boom. And so like there is a sin unto death. And so we should be cautious about that. Now, do I live in fear? No, I don't live in fear because I'm walking with the Lord. I have no fear whatsoever of that. If I wasn't walking with the Lord, yeah, I would have some fear about that. And I should. Like who, if you're a father and you don't care for your children in the way of discipline, what kind of father are you? A deadbeat dad. And that's not the God whom I serve. And so we look at this and we go, well, how does he keep us from sinning? Well, it says we know that um, 
the one who is born of God, verse 18 says, Jesus Christ, the only begotten one, keeps believers safe. And so Christians do not deliberately practice sin. They have the divine nature within them. Jesus Christ guards them, and they do not want God's discipline. They learn to respect and and have a reverence for God. So it brings us to the big idea of today's talk. And that is this. The Christian life is the real life we can certainly love. He closes in chapter 5 by verses 20 through 21. 20 and 21, he says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Here's why this series is so important. We become like the God we worship. Psalmist said in Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The secret to loving life is meeting the true God. And this is why Jesus referred to himself. And he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. As followers of Jesus, we do not choose between good and bad. We choose between truth and false, between true and false. Idols are false and empty, and so are those who worship them. Certainly today there are religions and we could see idols. And let me just land before we take communion today. There are some restaurants you go in and you will see an idol. It is false and empty. And the people who worship that idol are empty. You say, well, I would never do that. To some, the cross is an idol. And people use it like a charm that if I have a cross around my neck or I believe in the cross, I'm okay. No, you're not. That's turning the cross into an idol. The cross is indicative of what happened on it. And when I worship the man who hung on it, and rose from the dead, and I'm submissive and obedient to him, I'm worshiping Jesus, not the cross. So I can go to a church that just holds up the cross and say, well, that's what it's about. No, it's not. It's, it's a symbol that we use to help us remember, but we can turn it into an idol. You could turn religion into an idol. You can turn service into an idol. You can turn your job into an idol. You can turn money into an idol. You can turn your wife into an idol. You can turn your children into an idol. What is an idol? Anything that comes before Jesus. And so, like if we're not careful, we end up living lives that are empty 
because we're trying to put something ahead of Jesus. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.